Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Giant Pod with me, your host Andy Rintmore. My guest this week is Eleanor Talbot. She is the host of Variations on a Theme. You can find that on Mixtape Radio International. We talk about her life, we talk about touring with bands and singing and being on the TV and the radio, we talk about falling out of love with that and going in new directions. It's a globe-trotting conversation with her roots in Ireland, Scotland, Canada, and finally, after having years of, a, of subtle homesickness, finding that place that she now considers home here in the town of Froome in the UK, uh, we talk about love, we talk about loss, we talk about legacy we talk about her struggles and battles with renal failure and kidney transplants and how she has managed to achieve the things she has in life while simultaneously managing these conditions we talk about her life expectancy which is new information to me even though i'm friends with eleanor i've known her for a while now that was new information to me so we dive into that we talk about um, uh, legacy and how she's approaching what she thinks will be her legacy and hopes to be her legacy um, Her, we talk about forgiveness as well and understanding and uh, and we talk about lots of very human things um, there's a bit of philosophy in there I guess we talk about psychopaths and empathy and, and, and we talk about witches and witches covens as well we mentioned her uh, sister Kate and uh, her uh, brother-in-law Neil shout out to them a lot of love for them this is a great conversation she's lived such a full life already and, and it's been really fascinating to see uh, with the with the prognosis that she has how she is deciding to um, spend the rest of her life however long that may be and I think it's a really uplifting story it's full of hope it's full of optimism it's, she's got a great attitude um, and yeah, I just thank you very much for spending the time with me and being so open and honest. A lot of the stuff we talk about isn't necessarily easy. Um, and uh, really applaud her for, the, for her honesty and her openness towards that. So I've talked for too long now. Without further ado, this is Eleanor Talbot on The Giant Pod. I love her dearly and I know you will as well. So here it is. Oh, Eleanor Talbot, how are you? I am well, Andy Rintmore. I am doing very well. Thank you for having me on your show. Well, it was about time, wasn't it? Because I, yes, I've it been is on, about time. Absolutely. I've been on your show. Yeah, many times, I might add. At least five, four or five. Four or five. I feel like mm. variations on a theme alumni. You are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like, you know, um, like very soon I could expect a class <laughs> ring. Well, you're part of the Greatest Hits album. Ah, <laughs> hey. lovely. When they do a montage, you know, in years to come. That's right. You'll be front and center. The best bits. I want well, to maybe be not there. front and center. I'll be front that's, and center. That's your job, darling. That's my job. Oh, uh, yeah, this internet connection is far su- superior to the, to our first attempt. Good. Glad to hear so it. I'm very pleased ab- The perils of living in ye old England. Yes. So, yeah, it's about time I got you on the podcast because, as I was trying to say to you earlier and you were trying to say to me, we were both successfully saying to each other but unsuccessfully hearing each other. That's right. Um, you've lived quite a life. Um, uh, oh, I think so. <laughs> and uh, My opinion, anyway. And this is what I do with the giant pod is I get people on that have lived a life. Right. And uh, we talk And guess about... what? 
I'm still living it, Andy. You you are still living it. <laughs> not quite dead yet. You're not dead yet. <laughs> and you're, you know, you're an international radio starlet, aren't you? I am. I thank you for saying starlet. That makes me sound young. And hot. <laughs> young and hot, like Brigitte Bardot. <laughs> So tell me about tell me about your show, and then then what we'll do is we'll figure out who you are. We'll we'll get to right. the to the root of Eleanor get Talbot. To okay, good. I'm glad somebody's finally going to do that. Um, <laughs> so my show is called Variations on a Theme. It mm. plays every Tuesday on Mixtape Radio International, and I how the concept of the show is all about themes. So each week I play music according to a certain theme, whether that's cars or controversy, love or robots. So I'll find music that speak to those themes. And in between songs or groups of songs, I will tell stories and fun facts. And sometimes I have very interesting people on the show, like your dear self um, or actors or authors or whomever scientists. I've had some great guests. So it's a mixture really of stories song and interviews uh last time i was on i remember the the spirits cabinet was getting very (laughs) it was getting a good scene too wasn't it um the spirit spirit cabinet is a very important prop on variations it's got like an omnipresence hasn't it it's it's almost (laughs) a character within the the thing well that's how i bribe my guests (laughs) yeah you've got lots of very liberal with the booze. Yes. Um, how was that episode received? Actually, very well. The guilty that was so that was part of Trash or Treasure actually, mm. and the Trash or Treasure episodes are very popular. People love them. And basically, for those who haven't heard of Trash or Treasure, I try and find mostly obscure music or lesser known music. I also throw in a few classics, but. The point of the show is that you listen to these tracks and you decide whether they're trash or treasure. Not that I really adhere to that concept but it's just a fun thing and so we had your dear self and we had ollie from the river house we had local historian andy bailey and between the four of us we decided whether these tracks that i played were trash or treasure and i remember that i had some great reactions from you guys because i picked bands like the american rock group from the 70s fanny who are still going strong (laughs) and you guys love fanny if i recall (laughs) Um, but you hadn't heard of them which surprised me even though they were like really pretty iconic in their day and i try to pick music so i pick i also go all over the world i picked music from africa and from estonia and you name it there's absolutely no borders not just geographically but i have no borders of taste either and i remember you once saying to me that you wished you'd had the courage i had to play some of the songs that i play because they would be classified as guilty pleasures or trash (laughs) <laughs> and I told you that I had absolutely no problem polluting the airwaves with this kind of music. <laughs> Polluting. <laughs> so the thing about variations on a theme is you never know what I'm going to play. It is a trip down the rabbit hole. Yeah, and I mean, like, you know, one second, you know, you're shoving Fanny in our face. And the, yeah. and the next <laughs> the next, we're listening to some sort of Bangra mm. uh, metal. Yes. And then it's... And then it's um, Hip hop, yeah, and or then it's hip hop from yes. Um, yes. Where was that from? Um, China. The show you guys were on, it was a Chinese rapper. Yeah, yeah, you and played that. She was that. awesome, actually. Baba Swag. Mm. Yeah. Um, so you are unparalleled, I think. In, in <laughs> if I look through my rolodex of, of people I know, um, 
metaphorical Rolodex, of course, we're not in the 80s. Um, <laughs> you, you're the person I think has the most obscure music. You know, I could go, Eleanor, give me, uh, give me something. And it, what was the, there was some other stuff as well. Um, oh, I played all sorts. My goodness. So the Chinese hip hop, you, you were just, I was talking about, that mm-hmm. you just mentioned, I, mm-hmm. I remember her very powerful um, yeah. uh, music video, very powerful presence, yeah. powerful woman, full star. Yeah. But the other thing I was, I wanted to talk about, uh, I was, uh, what I was thinking of was the, um, oh, were they from Kazakhstan or? Oh, I, I have played. Um, I played a great group from yeah, um, from that area. Uh, they were. Oh, I've forgotten the name of the cultural group that they belong to but it's basically uh around the kazakhstan area somewhere around there and yeah they were not the hue because we all know the hue they're mongolian but it's the same sort of thing they were all very talented musicians i'm really sorry that the name is escaping me right now because they were really good that's the one they had a very the, funny video didn't they yeah where the guy comes to life he was part of a wall and he was like a noble warrior and he comes to life is that the one you're talking about no 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 i'm talking about the one where they're Oh, you mean, yes, these guys definitely were from Kazakhstan. You're talking about JKS, and that was Zin Zin. The yes. one that went dosh, 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 That is the most dope beat ever. So they're JKS. They're a very humorous hip-hop group from Kazakhstan. And they, so if you translate the lyrics, they say things like, so he's trying to seduce this girl. So he says things like, I will make a brilliant son-in-law for your mother. I've got my fruity gum in my pocket and my MP3 player. You know, total badass street talk, fruity yeah. gum and MP3 players. But there's a lot of um, humor and just sly cultural references in their songs. And it's a really dope beat. It's a ton of fun. And he's got that sort of Mongolian kind of quality to his voice. Yeah, that's JKS. I strongly recommend them. Brilliant. Absolutely bloody brilliant. So yeah, you can catch that uh, show, Variations on a Theme, on mm-hmm. Mixtape International, Mixtape Radio International, yeah. which was set up by our mutual friend John Walton. Correct. Who is an ex-Froom FM guy, which is where I got my sort of radio, audio-y uh, world... Experience. Big love to Froom yeah. FM, forever grateful. Yeah. Um, how, how, how is that going? Is it going well? Is it successful? It's going really well. I'm surprised actually at the kind of audience I'm getting because I don't really, I don't really advertise it very much. I post it on Facebook mm. but, and Instagram, but that's really it. I don't really have much experience with marketing, so that's all I do. And what's happening is that people are sharing the posts because I always put photographs with the posts and with the photographs I explain what the photographs are about. So it might be showing a burial at sea. And you're thinking, why on earth is she showing a picture of a burial at sea? And in the caption, I'll explain a little bit about burials at sea because it's part of my show, which is called The Call of the Sea. So it, it does tie right. in. And so that piques people's interest, all these interesting photographs with these little stories. And then, of course, there's a link, and then they go to the radio show from there, and they're starting to share it. And I have listeners from all over the world. The majority of my listeners are from Canada and the UK, but they also hail from places like Pakistan, Kazakhstan, Philippines, Ireland, Mexico, you name it. They're everywhere. Mm. And it's really impressive. There's not a vast audience, but they are all people who really love music and it's not of course it's not just about music it's about you learn a lot of things i've learned so much since i started oh yeah i'm going to be great at trivia one day because i've learned so many fun facts you're you're going to be the pub quiz queen i think so yeah um 
it is interesting that you say about the the audience, you know, and 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 all the corners of the world in which they're coming from. Given mm. that you know, as you said, you're only really marketing your show to your uh, to your networks via your Facebook yeah. and your Instagram. That's right. And of course, you know, sometimes we break out of our silos or our echo chambers with enough shares and likes and things. You know, other people get to see it. Yeah. But uh, you know, Harry. Uh, um, sends me breakdowns of the podcast statistics for just the downloads. We can't seem to figure out how to um, how to find our Spotify and other things stats because they have all their 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 websites yeah. locked down. But some of our right. download stuff we know, and there is there's places that I'm like I'm like I'm sure I know no one there, and they're popping up. Yeah, um, there's been like Uganda, yeah. and there's there's um, there's some just really obscure places that I wouldn't think would be listening to the giant pods and places in Japan. And of course, I don't know whether these are people, you know, people who are English speaking who live in these places right. or whether they're, you know, natives in the, you know, English isn't their first language and they're still enjoying it. I don't know, but it is yeah. the power of the internet is, is fascinating because I do wonder sometimes how people are finding this podcast because I will promote it definitely, but I'm not pumping yeah. money into feeding the algorithms i'm not i'm you know i'm just putting it out in my networks using the hashtags that are you know um yeah relevant and it seems to be yeah. finding an audience and, gr- and growing and it's just uh i just don't know how it's happening i don't i don't understand really how things go viral either i would love for variations of a, on a theme to go viral my only concern about that is that my show is a little bit unusual in that I don't really have anybody censoring my show. Right. So I can sometimes play music that will have a lot of bad language in it. Yeah. Um, to me, it's an important piece of music that needs to be played because it's part of the zeitgeist of a particular generation or area. So, for example, we've got Sex Pistols with Frigging in the Rigging. Mm. And also a lot of uh, hardcore rap will have a lot of swear words and things. And if I suddenly had to censor all of that, I think that would be a shame because that language is actually a part of the story. And yes, it might be offensive, but it is an important part of what was going on in the writers' minds and the culture that they were living in at the time. Mm. So as much as I'd love to go viral, I would also hate to suddenly have to be controlled by bigger institutions saying, well, you can't play that song or you need to play this pop song because... You know, we're sponsoring them. I love the fact that I have absolute autonomy in what I do. And I do try to be sensitive with my stories and with my music, you know, and not offend people. But sometimes I think that, you know, this is a song that I want to include because I think it's an important cultural reference. So that's the only downside sometimes to when these shows become famous. They get taken over by sponsors and then suddenly you lose all control. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm. The same, really, because obviously there are things like trigger warnings, which I respect and I try to yeah. do on this podcast if I can. Yeah. You know, if we're talking about something that's particularly a particularly traumatic experience for someone, mm. let's say, then I, I, at the beginning of the podcast, I will say, hey, we talk about, you know, suicide and this yeah. and that and, and whatever. And if this is something that, you know, puts you in a dark place, then, you know, you've been warned and you can go yeah. elsewhere for this episode yeah. if, you, if you wish. But with with stuff like swearing and songs and stuff, like when I was yeah. on Froom FM, I couldn't have any swearing in my radio shows. Right. And when I was doing Velocity Rock, which was a rock, punk and metal show, it was so hard to get... <laughs> 
the uh, to, to to because there were so many songs I really wanted to play. Yeah, and they were so good, so good. And then in the last verse, they they drop an you know they drop an f bomb or something, yeah. and you're like, oh, well I can't you know I can't play this now. Or there were there would be a couple of occasions where I would play the song and I'd sit there with my fader ready. And I'd know when the swearing was coming and I'd dip the fader in and out on the swear word. And I tell you what, that's quite exhilarating because I'm going out live. <laughs> I'm live on air and I'm about to live censor a swear word. You got your trigger finger at the ready? Boom! And I just sort of pull it down. But I didn't really want to do that no. particularly because it's not professional. Although it is a bit edgy though. I also think that we do our audience a bit of a disservice if we spoon-feed them or treat them like children. And we must yeah. remember that language is ever-evolving, and that includes words that aren't so nice. They're mm-hmm. still culturally important, and they still speak volumes. And, you know, if we wrap ourselves in cotton wool all the time, I think we do miss some really vibrant, exciting music. Yeah. And again, it's not that I'm saying swearing, swearing is the greatest thing ever, but sometimes it just tastes so good to say a bad <laughs> word, doesn't it? You know, uh-huh. There's a time and a place. But there I is. don't like to be censored when it comes to my music. I mean, obviously, I try not to play anything that's hateful. That's yeah. about the only sort of rule I have. But other than that, I love being open and letting people explore and make their own minds up. Yeah, like I'd never play like, oh, here's a neo-Nazi punk band. You know, <laughs> forget all the white supremacist lyrics. Um, yeah. And just, just listen to this bass line. It's amazing. <laughs> I would ne- never do no. that. It's that's about the only rule. But what would annoy, you know, and, and that's part of the gig with with being on a, a station where, like, you you know, you're your own boss in, in, mm. in many ways. And because you're on the internet, it's a little yeah. bit like the Wild West yep. with, with regulation and stuff. But mm-hmm. there's a part of me which really wants to do a radio show again and, and have one where it is on the internet, where I don't have to worry about if there's any swearing in it or whatever. Yeah. Um, for f- fines by the... FCC, whoever yeah. whoever the board is, Peter, yeah. I don't know whoever does it. Ofcom, that's it. Um, <laughs> FCC in America, I think. Um, but there's a problem. It's like I'm an adult now. I've done my growing up. Yeah, you know. And now I want to do adult shit. If exactly. I want to, if I want to swear, I'm going to swear. Yeah. And 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 then there's a part of me which is like, okay, if you if you're listening to the show and you hear a swear word, you get oh my. Yeah. They're offended, and you're an adult. I think it's it's tough titties, really. It's yeah. tough and shit. And maybe we're not the show for you, and that's fine. Right? Yeah. If you're a grown adult and you can't handle it, mm-hmm. that's not my problem because <laughs> I've done I've done my growing up now, and this is how I choose to you know yeah, do my exactly. thing. Obviously, there's times to be appropriate, times to you know yeah. to knock it on the head and everything. But generally, you can't you can't live your life walking on eggshells yeah. because someone doesn't like the word fuck. No. Censorship is such a sliding slope, too, because it is based on the listener's idea of what they find offensive, which gives such a broad range. You just can't suit everybody. And so it's something that I feel quite strongly about. I'm not in favor of censorship. I mean, there's obviously some things nobody wants to hear, like you say, hate, anything that's to do with spouting hate. But generally speaking, if it's a moral offense, like bad language or things like that, then people have the opportunity to turn off, you know, just switch off and that's fine. Live in your own world. That's great. I applaud that, but please don't interfere with our joys and our privileges and what we find culturally appropriate. So 
again, now you, people listening to this will think that my show is full of filthy lyrics and F-bombs. And actually, it's not. Most of the music I play is completely fine. Uh, most of the stories that I talk about are completely fine. But it's just that occasionally I will have artists who aren't exactly innocent when it comes to lyrics. They're a little blue, and that's fine. Yeah. It spices up the show. And 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 saying what I've just said, I think about every Sick One song Mm. I've drummed on, which is all of them. Um, Mm. And I cannot say there's any swearing in any of our songs, even though we're a hardcore punk band. It's all angry, it's fast, you know, you'd expect swearing. There's Mm. no swearing in it. And and it's not because we took the stance of saying, hey, we want to get on the radio with this. Because although we're very lucky to be on the BBC when we release stuff, yeah, it would be we'd be out of our minds to assume that that would have been the case when when we started out. So it was never a case of like, oh, we're we're not going to swear because we want to be as mainstream as possible. Yeah. It was just like, does it need to does it need to be there? Artistically, can yeah. we say what we want to say mm. without swearing? And yeah. that doesn't mean. Like I said, I I want to swear as much as I like. If you don't, if you can't handle it, and you're an adult, that's on you. Um, but also, this like you're like you're saying with your show, it, it, you don't have needless vulgarity. If it's no. artistically integral to the yeah. to the piece, and it, and it and it lends itself to the message of the piece, mm-hmm. then you'll play it. But yeah. yeah, and I think you know, sick ones has been very much the same. Where so you know, if we if we need to say fuck, we will. Yeah. But until that time comes, you know, there there are more artistic, uh, intelligent ways of doing it, but we're never going to sh- never going to shy away from it. It reminds me of a story when I first started in the early days of my show. Um, of course, I've got no DJ experience, so I was completely green with this. And I interviewed a musician from Canada who's a great musician named by the name of Levi Cuss, and he was on my Guilty Pleasure show. And, of course, one of his songs that he wanted was N.W.A.'s Fuck the Police. (laughs) And he said, can I have, you know, N.W.A. Fuck the Police? And I said, no, we can't play that song. And, you know, pick another one. So he picked, um, I can't remember the one, uh, Straight Outta Compton is the one that he ended (laughs) up picking by Easy E. (laughs) Right. And it's so funny because I said, no, you can't have Fuck the Police. Because here I am, I'm green, I don't know what I can or cannot do. So I said, yeah, no problem. We can play Straight Outta Compton. Well, of course, the first line in Straight Outta Compton is like, you know, crazy motherfucker Straight Outta Compton. (laughs) (laughs) And it was so blue. And I was just like, oh, dear God, I'm never going to have a radio show after this. (laughs) He he might as well have had Fuck the Police because (laughs) Straight Outta Compton is every bit as bad. But but since then, I've decided, no, it's all part of the cultural zeitgeist. I'm going to let it pass. So (laughs) I'm not as nervous anymore. Um, great, um, great story about, um, guests and swearing and stuff. Mm. This goes back to, um, to, uh, John Walton, the founder of the station that you're on, who we mentioned earlier. There we go. There's that plug again. Um, it was, it was when I was green and, uh, and I was at Froom FM to begin with. My first ever thing I did with Froom FM was to do a phone interview with John Cooper Clark. Oh my goodness. And as if the listener doesn't know who that is, Google John Cooper Clark. He is um, known as the punk poet, the bard of Salford in Manchester. Um, he is he, he yeah. His his poems are 
um, blue. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they and, are. And, and edgy <laughs> and, and, and vulgar at times, but they're brilliant and they're intellectual and mm-hmm. they're very clever. And, and, and as I was saying earlier with the sick ones, lyrical content and stuff like that, you know, he swears to punctuate something, not yeah. not not using it as a crutch or yeah. padding or filler for what he's doing. If he needs to say something, he has all the words in the world to say it and the means to do it. So when he does use swearing, it's to, um, at least in his work, it's it's to punctuate and make a point. But that cannot be said about him in an interview. <laughs> and uh, we say to him before we go on, you know, before we start recording, you know, hi, John, this is the community radio station. Um, please, can you refrain from swearing just so that, you know, this doesn't have to get chopped and edited and, you know, please keep it as clean as you can. Blah, blah, blah. We do the interview with, with John. Does he listen to that? No, he doesn't. <laughs> and I spent the next hour, two maybe two hours, sat next to John Walton as he's going through this audacity file, finding every fucking and shit and whatever he said, um, and, and like beeping it out and everything. There's a there was a moment where he turns to me and. Because John's, John's South African, and he's, it, 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 I find a lot of South Africans are very direct and take no shit. And he listens to me <laughs> very direct, and he goes, next time, you're editing this. <laughs> he's like, I'm not doing this again. <laughs> and um, yeah, he was right, I did, the next time I edited my own stuff. But um, yeah, it's just, it's, you just don't know what you're going to get. And that, that was part of the, the thing with with uh, Velocity Rock and that is towards the end I sort of switched my format up and I got bands on and there's <laughs> always one guy in every band that sh- just shouldn't be given a mic yeah <laughs> and um, that that be- that was when the show became the most like Howard Stern I think it's ever been oh, was you know when you've got like four drunk rock musicians <laughs> in, in, in the studio with you and they don't really care if they say something yeah that's rock and roll for you it's not them it gets in trouble, is it? It's not <laughs> them who has to spend, you know, ten minutes cutting it out and putting in a beep and yeah, whatever. But um, yeah, good times, good times. So good you times. say you've got a lot of um, listeners in Canada, and I assume this is because you are actually Canadian. Well, I'm not actually Canadian. I'm masquerading as one, but I'm not a real Canadian. No, I was born in Ireland actually, um, and raised in between Scotland and then Canada. So I went to Canada when I was nine, and um, nine to 16, I was in Canada. So they're very influential years. Of course, you pick up Canadian accent. And then when I was 22, I went back to Canada and stayed there until last year. So obviously, friends are Canadian. My husband was Canadian. I worked with Canadians. So naturally, I, I picked up the accent. But no, I'm not a real Canadian. I don't know how to play hockey. Okay, so tell me, okay, so tell me where it starts in Ireland. Yes. To born in Ireland. Yes. Born in Ireland to non-Canadian parents, or what? What's yeah, the deal? Yeah, my dad like? was Irish through and through. My mum was uh, from England. She was born in London. Uh, her dad was a Highlander, and her mother was from Wiltshire, so sort of local. Um, and uh, they met on a train. Dad was in the navy, and he was on leave. We met this stunningly beautiful woman on a train, and married her very quickly thereafter. And I am the youngest of five girls, so I was my parents' last chance to create perfection. Ah, <laughs> naturally, it worked. Oh, I can see that. Yeah. Um, so, how do you guys 
tell me about your childhood. How did you get to uh, Canada? Did you say nine years old? Yeah, I was nine. Yeah. So we left Ireland when I was two. So I really have no memories of Ireland. Right. And we lived way up in the northeastern highlands of Scotland in a place called Galsby in Sutherland. And, uh, you know, of course, it was Scotland in the 70s. And you can imagine what the economy was like. It was pretty uh, pretty bad. It was a real struggle. Right. So my dad had two sisters who had previously emigrated to Canada many years before and were doing very well for themselves. So they sort of convinced him that Canada and specifically Calgary and Alberta out west, was the land of milk and honey. Right. So my parents, tiring of rain-soaked greenery in Scotland, decided a change of environment was needed. So we headed from there to, you know, instead of rain-soaked greenery, we headed to snow-soaked greenery <laughs> in Canada. And we were hoping that the gold-paved streets of Canada would offer solace. And we packed up, we went west, and we arrived in Calgary just in time for the recession of 1981. So, <laughs> start as you mean to finish. <laughs> okay. Uh, was this move met with any protest from you guys? Because I get, yeah. I'm assuming you're eight years old yeah. when they tell you, and you're probably nine by the time yep, you get there. That's right. Yeah. Um, great protest. None of us wanted to go. We were all very attached to the U.K., and we went to Canada. And, of course, Canada is a stunningly beautiful country. And Canadians are really nice people. And they're fun. They're a lot like the Brits. Um, but, you know, if it's not your home, it's not your culture, you never quite settle in. And that's what happened. Even though I spent 34 years of my life in Canada, I never really felt a massive connection to Canada. Although, in fairness, I think it's a great place and I had good times there. So I don't, I'm not dissing Canada in any way. Right. But my connection to the UK was stronger. Did you feel that sort of spiritually, sort of in yourself? Like, did you feel this, this sort of uh, displacement when you were in Canada? Was there always just something yeah. lingering where it's like, yeah. you know, I'm happy, I've got friends, I've got a job that maybe doesn't suck every day and, <laughs> and the weekends yeah. are quite good. And, oh, look, there's this band called The Tragically Hip and... <laughs> They're, they're, yeah, they're great. And, oh, Rush. Oh, yeah. Um, Neil Young. Oh, and then you're like, fan, but okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, and then you're like, ah, oh, but this just doesn't quite do it for me. No, but, you know, I'm always tentative to say that because I don't want to put Canada down because I owe Canada a lot. And like I said, it's a great country and Canadians are great people. So I'm very grateful for the time I had in Canada. Canada made me welcome. Absolutely. And I'm grateful for that. I think there's something that's bred into your bones to do with your inherent culture. And I felt inherently British, not Irish, funnily enough, because I was so young when I left Ireland, but deeply connected to Scotland and England. And that wasn't something I was able to quite wash out while I was in Canada. I was always longing for home. I say that in quotes. I don't know whether it's because I have a really lo vast love of history. And of course, Britain has that in oodles. Western mm. Canada's historically quite young unless you obviously I'm discounting indigenous culture but I mean you know western type culture which I'm obviously going to relate to more mm. um I don't I can't really tell you what it is it's sort of a, a longing that's inside of you that doesn't necessarily have any legitimate reason it's just there and so I was homesick and I never got mm. over that yeah homesick is such an interesting um mm. What I mean, define that. I can't. Yeah, it's such an interesting thing. It's, I'm not. Sh I'm, I don't know if I've ever really, ever really been homesick. Mm. Sometimes, sometimes if you're in a, a, like a relationship and you're with someone and you're away from that person for a while, mm. 
Mm. You can get that longing for them, can't yeah. you? And I, that's 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 how I imagine sort of there's like a home there's a homesickness there, isn't it? In that yeah. they're very similar feelings. So any any it's been a very very long time since I felt anything that I could say was actual homesick. Yeah, um, it's always. Been... I don't know how you define that kind of longing. Mm. Now I'm here. I feel like I've come home. Yeah. Even though I'm not from Froome, my family's on my mother's side were from Wiltshire. Yeah. Um, I don't really know the area very well. I don't know Froome at all, other than having lived here for the past year and a half. But Froome feels like home. Right. And I, I love it here. Yeah. And I've been made very welcome here. Yeah, this Froome is a special place, and I have to say mm. that as the acting mayor. <laughs> <laughs> but you'd be honest; you'd be you'd be saying a the truth there. Mm. I mean, I talk about Froome a lot on my radio show, which must be a little bit puzzling to people who are listening in from other parts of the world. But one Canadian wrote to me and said, "I really want to come to Froome because you've really sold it to me listening <laughs> to your shows over the year." Yeah. So you know, it's a good advertisement for Froome, if nothing else. Yeah, I think I mentioned Froome in every podcast. I, I, you know, mm. between the two of us, Ellie, you know, we're, put, we're putting it on <laughs> we the map. We got Froome covered. Yeah, we've got Froome covered. <laughs> we're putting it on the map. It's fine. Um, yeah, strange. When I was in America for a couple of weeks doing the doing a tour, I grew up watching America on the telly and listening mm. to American bands and in absorbing American culture. Yeah, and I really think it was just. Oh, it's magical, like crazy cool place that maybe when I got there, I'd go, I need to be here forever. Maybe I did think mm. that because I'd because it was not not really a part of me, but it, America. I don't know if America realizes how it shapes other people through its right. through the media output through Absolutely. the consumption of of America in whatever yeah. fabricated, fictitious way that might be. Yeah. Um, I mean, all the best children's films I can think of are American, you know, and they <laughs> take place in these perfect American suburbs where the sun's always shining and the lawn's That's green. That's right. And, you know, everyone's happy. <laughs> America's always been exceptionally good at selling the dream. Exactly, right? Yeah. And when I got there, I realised that there between the places that we were playing, which weren't particularly glamorous places because that's where you need punk rock. That's where mm. you need the catharsis of a mosh pit and to scream mm-hmm. your lungs out, it, you know, nihilistic or, um, you know, they're even, the lyrics are even nihilistic or like absolutely positive and get me out of this hole, you know, give me the strength mm. to... to, to to better myself or whatever. So we end up playing these places that aren't exactly, they're not like LA, they're not New York City, yeah. they're not, you know, they're yeah. not super glamorous. And yeah. so you get, to, I got to see a lot of the real America. Yeah. And it's a lot of towns between places that just all look very much the same. I'm sure they mm. all have their community spirit and their, and their, uh, their vibes in that. But uh, it, it mm. was, strange i was like that was the longest i'd been away from home for a very long time and i was very pleased to be back and i was very when i got back to Froome, then i i that was the the plate the part of my life where i actually appreciated Froome the most mm-hmm. i'd already started to because when we grew up in Froome, it, it was a little bit boring they didn't feel like there was a lot to do and the the sort of the dream thing was to get out i guess or that was the the thing that's perpetuated and i think that's 
very normal for your teenage years because that one, yeah. wonderlust comes in. Yeah. And for me, it was like, yeah, let's get in a van with my mates and go and see the world from behind a drum kit. And the the path to really, really appreciating Froome and really loving Froome and being a bit patriotic about Froome, I don't know if that's the word, localism, I guess, is the, the real term, but really yeah. having that hometown pride was beginning yeah. to... It was already sort of there because of how I did Froom FM and, and, and I just felt like the town had got to a place where everything I wanted to do it could provide for me. Yeah. Bandmates or a radio station or had a job and or, or, or musicians to work with and things. I didn't feel like I was ever in a dead-end place like after the age of 15 or something. I just didn't feel like it was dead-end anymore. No. But it really made me appreciate my hometown way 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 more and then when I got home yeah it was this feeling of like inside like I didn't feel displaced anymore like you got that you sort of like click back into into place if you know what I mean yeah it's really hard to describe but you know when you're you know when you're home don't you yeah well I certainly feel settled here yeah yeah I just yeah it's such a fascinating thing because there's another guy I was talking to he's part of this thing called Celestian who are um, a drone company that bring up drones with LED lights on. And oh, yes. I don't know if you've seen it. They, they, yes. they make it a bit of a and noise. New Year's, they did a great display. That's right. I and, don't know the same company, but same idea. I think it is. And what they do, what these drones do for the listeners, they're on programs and they're all coordinated. And they go up in the sky and they form almost like, you know, like a star constellation. It's almost yeah. like that, but a bit more detailed because they're, there's more of them and, and, and whatnot, and they can create sort of phoenixes flapping their wings and stuff, and it's very cool. But one of the guys that runs that company, I was chatting to him, and he said that when he came to Froome a few years ago, he knew nothing of Froome, nothing about it. He said when he got here, he instantly felt at home. Like it was a feeling he couldn't shake. Yeah. He said he, he didn't get it, but he knew that this is where he needed to be. Now, I don't know if you can say, oh, well, you're probably already thinking that before you do it, so you're open to that feeling coming in. Mm. You've opened yourself up to that, you know, being persuaded to go consciously or subconsciously. But then he says he goes to St. John's Church, which is the big church in the centre of our our town, and he starts looking around. He realises that um, his family name is all over the place. And it turns, I must get him, maybe I'll get him on the podcast and we can talk about it. He realizes he speaks to the to the vicar of the of the church, and he says, "Hey, I'm so and so." And he says, "Oh my goodness, I have so much information on your family. You know, so and so built this church and this and that, yeah. and they were this, and it was." And he's just got these like ledgers. Uh, he's got these um these things in in Latin that are like wills and testaments or something. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and his family is deeply ingrained in the history of Froome and really big things like building a church and being buried in the church and wow. and things like that. And he didn't know anything about it, but wow. he came to sort Froome. Sort of a psychic connection. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he came to Froome and he was like, this is where I need to be. This is where I feel, I feel strangely complete when I'm here. So he moved here and then he realized that his family built this town, basically. That's so cool. Weird, those right? Kind of, those kind of coincidences and connections, I love those kinds of stories. Yeah. You, it does make you wonder if such if there is more to things than yeah, coincidence sure. and random chaos, doesn't it? Yeah. 
Well, I found out something recently that's quite cool. So all my life I've been told that, I've, that I'm related to one of the Beatles, uh, so that George Harrison and I are related through marriage. Um, I can't quite figure out how we're related, but apparently we're related through marriage and uh, through an aunt, who, a woman who married my dad's brother. So she's the connection. Anyway, we both lived on a street called Arnold Grove. So Arnold Grove is where I lived in Ireland, and mm. Arnold Grove is where George Harrison lived in Liverpool. So we've got a connection by living on a street with the same name, and we're also connected through marriage. So our families are intertwined. Yeah. Uh, it's and just... Arnold Grove, sorry, Arnold Grove is also where my next-door neighbor was Sinead O'Connor, and she was Arnold Grove as well. <laughs> <laughs> So maybe there's something about Arnold Grove. Arnold <laughs> Grove. We've got a, a place um, near where I live called Gooch Close. Gooch Close? <laughs> Are you just saying that because it's a funny street name? You know what a Gooch is, right? I don't. Oh, no. <laughs> is it rude? It's pretty rude. <laughs> you will have to tell me off camera. It's, it's, the, it's the bit between the bum and the other bit. <laughs> oh, well, that's what we call the, ta- the taint. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So there's somewhere, somewhere in uh, on Facebook is probably about a million pictures of of random blokes stood next to the street, pointing at it, saying "Gooch close." But, um, yeah, that fun. never gets old. Uh, no, <laughs> every time I see it, I smile. Um, so let's uh, let's move away from taints and gooches and go yes, back let's. to. Uh, <laughs> can't believe I brought that up. <laughs> Okay, Harry, maybe cut that out. So, um, <laughs> so you arrive in Canada at nine years old. I did. Yep. What happens? How do you acclimatize? You you've got this homesickness going on. Yeah. That, as we understand, doesn't properly leave you for thirty something years, right? Right. So, what do you do? What 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 does life become? Well, my family have always been very musical and theatrical. Um, my dad was an actor and a producer and a writer and a million other things and a very creative person, as was my mother. And so we all sort of became involved in community theatricals and also music. Music was a huge influence in all our lives. My elder sister, Kate, she uh, was a huge influence on me music-wise. I have four older sisters, and all of them were influences, but Kate in particular was my main influence when it came to music and style. She was nine years older than me, and I always thought she was uber cool because she was very sort of punk rock and new wave, and she was a massive David Bowie fan, or David Bowie, depending on how you pronounce it. And so that was a big influence. So we sort of, because winters are very long in Canada, they go on for months, 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 you get very involved in the arts because what else is there to do? So you become an artist, you become an actor, you become a writer, and you listen to music. So arts and entertainment were a huge part of my life. So I acted, I sang, and, of course, I listened to music. Mm. I've met Kate on various occasions because you yes. you live with Kate and um, yes. and her wonderful husband, Neil, who I have a lot of love for. Yes, everybody uh, loves Neil. And your house is a like it's a punk rock shrine, isn't it? 
Like just <laughs> yes. like just behind you here. I mean, she's also an artist, isn't she? She of, is. Of other she's things. a very accomplished artist. Yes. Kate Talbot, for those who don't know. Yes, we will. Her name um, is Kate Talbot. We will leave links to uh, her work yes. in our yes. show notes descriptions. But behind you, uh, mm. just over your right shoulder, is a trumpet with a light yes. bulb in it. And a light and a lampshade, and that just sort of sums up the sort of the creativity, and it's sort of there's an esoteric nature to some of some of her art. But I love yes. the uh, that your Sid Vicious cardboard cutout, which greets me at the top of the stairs every time I come round. Yes, uh, Sid, bless him. He's uh, front and center in this house. It's bloody great. I did say to Kate last time I was around because we'd been raiding that drinks cabinet, so I thought, yes, I'll, 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 I'll just say it now. Um, <laughs> Anything happens to uh, that uh, Sid Vicious cutout? If she ever gets sick of it, I want to be the first in line <laughs> to be, you know, back to, off, buddy, to adopt because it's mine. <laughs> It'll be mine after she goes. So nice try. Well, you know, you're just going to have to try and remember me in your uh, will and testament. <laughs> in my will. Um, <laughs> well, punk music was a huge influence for both Neil and Kate. Yeah, and of course, that is still a big part of their lives. The the whole zeitgeist if you will of the punk generation is still alive and well and it is very much present in kate's art and neil's neil is also an accomplished artist and in not only in the music that they listen to but also in the way that they live in that they are very much into independent politics which is another reason why they love Froom. they're very much about you know people having autonomy and sticking it to the man if you will so yeah, about being a bit of a rebel and a maverick. And trying to be, I guess, trying to be not totally off-grid, but trying no, to keep... not off-grid, but... Trying to keep, yeah, like... People power, you know? Yeah. The punk rock is all about people power. Yeah. It might seem, when you listen to lyrics about punk, that it's more sort of introspective and about sort of the rebel within the soul, but punk rock really speaks to a much bigger concept than that. It really is about people power and sticking it to the men and wanting to stand up and be counted when you're considered a lesser person, you know, Mm. because you're poor, you're working class or you're whatever, disadvantaged in some way. Punk is the voice for those people. And we shouldn't discount that. No, I find the first wave of punk as good as it is. And as much Mm. as I love the Sex Pistols and I love the Damned and I love the Ramones and the X-Ray Specs and maybe stiff little fingers you know and, and the the list goes on i find the first wave of punk um doesn't doesn't quite have the substance of the stuff that came a little later in the 80s the american stuff like the dead kennedys uh, and um uh, um oh, who am i thinking of uh, fugazi minor fret and, and these things that became more less about self-destruction and anarchy in the UK and all these things that mm. were kind of unattainable. I mean the clash the clash were different because they were they were very very smart in their thinking and they were very subversive and they uh, the clash mm. had way more going on I'd say than the pistols. The pistols mm. at times might be a bit more fun to listen to because they're just mm-hmm. it's just they're just a rock and roll band but the clash really had something to properly to say. Um and I found that a lot of the 80s punk uh, the early '80s stuff really had much more to say for the per- on the personal level or on a more of a community level, rather than um, 
you know, Sex Pistols had like Belson was a gas, which is just, it's just sort of crass for the sake of crass. Isn't Terrible. It? Yeah. It's like, yeah. oh, let's, how, how controversial can we be? Um, because that's punk. And that, that, that may have defined the first period of punk rock, but I think what punk is now and should always be is a, a weapon to, um, or a vessel to deliver messages of positivity and hope. Mm. of personal growth and stuff a lot of I mean, hardcore is well i think that's a bit subjective too because i'm quite a bit older than you mm. so I, my history with punk goes back a little bit further and obviously punk of course got its start in america yeah. mostly in new york and really early 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 punk was more about beat poets and rebels like that mm. and then of course that sort of segued into the more anarchy and uh, based rock and things like that so the stories are very broad and it's kind of hard to pinpoint, but there's a great book called Please Kill Me and it's the history of punk. Mm. And it really documents the journey of punk from day one to its current state. So like any music genre, it's ever evolving and it will speak to the generation of its time. And, you know, it's, it's as every bit as prescient and important as any other type of genre out there, even if it has maybe a slightly smaller audience, but it's yeah. definitely culturally important. It's interesting to talk about, I guess what you were dipping into there was sort of like proto-punk. Mm. So um, the Sonics would probably be considered proto-punk because, well, they're garage rock, but there's there's a punk element to it. And you've got the Stooges and mm. the MC5 and the New York Dolls Bad as well. Brains and all of those guys. Bad brains were very important because they were a little bit different because mm. they were all black mm. and you just didn't see that. I mean, we always associated black people with soul music and disco and things like that. Yeah. Um, and to see a full black punk band was a novelty for us. And um, why wouldn't they? I mean, who couldn't, who better to speak to punk's values <laughs> yeah. than black people is, considering their history? Yeah. And the bad brains are very much. I, I consider them very much part of that s- second wave, first wave hardcore, second wave, wave punk. Um, mm. They were very accomplished jazz musicians as well. Like, like the, when you listen to their uh, like early records and their production is quite shabby and, and all over the place and chaotic, mm. it does really sound like people just th- thrashing it out on on stuff. Mm. But they're so their their musicianship was so good their dub and their reggae and the jazz stuff they were yeah. exploring it really was like um when they tried to write hardcore it was almost like them just putting their feet up it must have been so mm-hmm. easy to them but you can hear it in the way that they they swing it and they groove it a little bit but they also didn't like i don't think they liked the term afropunk no i'm sure they didn't because i think they were like no 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 this has nothing to do with with our with our, you know, colour of our skin or, or whatever. You know, yeah. this is this is music. Uh, yeah. And, um, yeah, very I mean, important band. The problem with these conversations, though, Andy, is that I'm not a music historian and I'm not that well-versed. Yeah. I like music, I listen to a lot of it, and I know a little bit about it. But oh, yeah. I can't really speak with any intelligence. So... <laughs> oh, I disagree. <laughs> I don't really know that much. So after you... you so Kate's a big influence on you and... yes. You adopt sort of the, you have a very punk rock attitude um, towards 
things. You you don't dress very punk rock, do you? You've got your own. No, you found your own vintage. Yes, yeah. you found your own style, and eventually yes. you end up in. I would. I want to say the least punk rock <laughs> band, but I don't know. Perhaps you guys were in your own way. You know, you've you've grown up in Canada. Yeah. At some point, you yeah. meet some sort of Antonio Banderas looking. <laughs> I met a very dashing, handsome young man from El Salvador mm. named Mauricio Moreno. Actually, his full name is Carlos Mauricio Moreno Aguilar. That's his full name. Uh, so to translate, Carlos Moreno is Charlie Brown, which I always thought was uber cool. So I fell in love with Charlie Brown, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Explain that. Is this Charlie Brown the cartoon? Uh, he, my ex-husband's name, translated was Charlie Brown. Oh. I thought that was clear. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Stay sorry. with me, Andy. Stay with me here. <laughs> sorry, I can't keep up. It was all the... Um, Mauricio Moreno. So we didn't the go rolling by of ours. went by Mauricio. Yes. Right. <laughs> it helps to roll your So, yes, I fell in love with a very dashing young man called Mauricio. And uh, like I said, he was from El Salvador. And when I met him, he'd not long been in Canada. And... He had an interesting life. He had fled war-torn El Salvador and came to Canada and, you know, really struggled. I mean, it was for, it's hard enough when you don't speak the language. Of course, he spoke Spanish, not English, but he had to deal with winters. He'd never seen snow before. He had no money. You know, it was a, he really was tough and he is a true immigrant, you know, fairy tale in that he really made something himself. Anyway, I met him and he was just learning guitar, but he had such a passion for it that I was just so taken by how quickly he took to this instrument. And within months, he was learning really complicated, you know, chord progressions and whatnot. And before long, he and I decided that we're going to form a band. And we had a close friend by the name of David Joseph, who also could play guitar. And so we just decided to form this little band. And in the beginning, it was just the two guitarists, David and Mauricio. And I just sort of managed them and, you know, would write music and do things like that. But I wasn't really greatly involved. But over time, I started to sort of insert myself more into the band. Not because I really wanted to, but because out of the three of us, I was the better singer. And that's not saying much because I'm not a great singer. So, um before long, we just started to get picked up by radio shows, and then we got drummers and a bass player, and it progressed really fast. I mean, it was really wonderful. We toured Western Canada. We were on TV and radio all the time. Um, we created several albums together. We did the festival circuits. We played with some great artists, like we played with the flamenco guitarist Oscar Lopez. We played with the very well-known uh African guitarist Alfa Yaya Diallo. We opened for Angelique Kijo, African superstar. Opened for Cesaria Evora, who's another great world musician, uh, singer. We played with the reggae group Third World um, and so many others. We just had this blast. We met all these amazing people, did all these wonderful things. And it was great fun. And the music was called Rumba Flamenca. So it was a mixture of traditional flamenco with sort of pop and rumba elements and funk and world music, I suppose. It's just a ton of fun. Sort of Gypsy Kings meets funk, you know, meets pop. 
And so you said you fell in in love with this chap. It, what? It, yes. Where, where, where does the where does the falling in love? How do you guys meet? And where's <laughs> where's the falling in love bit happen? Is this like, hey, we should start a band because really you're kind of falling in love with him and you want an excuse to spend lots of time with him? Uh, or, or no. Is this come from, <laughs> that came after. Does this come from like <clears throat> an intense touring schedule and just being in each other's pockets all the time and stuff? like No, that? Uh, we married first and then the band came afterwards. I met him in a coffee shop. It's kind of funny because I've been married twice and I bet mo- I met both my husbands in coffee shops. Is this so why you hang outside the... This uh, is why it- I hang out in Riverhouse <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and La Strada, desperately preening, hoping I'll meet my third husband. Um, <laughs> so, yes, I met uh, Mauricio. He was playing guitar in a coffee shop and he offered to walk me home. And I said, oh, I live just down the road. But, of course, I live miles away. This poor bugger had to walk for miles with his heavy guitar case and he was terribly shy and his English was very poor and he was just so cute, cute as a button. And he said, you know, what do you do? And I'm thinking, oh, he means what do I do for a living? So I'm trying to tell me, tell him that what I was doing as a job. And he's like, no, do you do things? And I'm thinking, yeah, I do things. <laughs> you know, thinking, okay, where's this going? And then he said, would you like to, to do things with me? <laughs> I said, well, hey, <laughs> I'd love to do things with you. <laughs> and that was his way of trying to say, can I ask you out on a date? So uh, he asked me out on a date, and it was very cute. And we were both flat broke. I lived in a studio flat, and he uh, also lived in a very small apartment. We had no money. Our early days were just going for picnics and walks by the river. What else do you do? But right. we married uh, two years later. We, we married, and um, after that... He, become, he became very good with the guitar. And so I sort of thought, why don't we take this a little bit further? You know, my dad was involved in something called Celtic Folk. And it was, as you can imagine, it was a folk festival that had Celtic music. But sometimes they brought in world music. Right. And so they gave us a slot and we went and did a show and it went down really well. And we just built from there. And... Had you did you have any background in singing before that? Or did you... No, no. So you just winged it? <laughs> I winged it. I mean, I'm from Ireland, of course, and being raised between Ireland and Scotland, the Celtic influence was strong. And of course, the Celts love a Cayley, right. love a bit of crack. And of course, singing and music is a huge part of that culture. So we were all raised. Every party that we ever had, each of us had our own song that we sang, you know, when we had our little Cayleys. And mostly I sang jazz and folk music. And, but I always wrote music as well. Right. And so it just built from there. I'm not a great singer, though, and I, that was difficult because people have this expectation when you're in a band that you must be an amazing singer. And, of course, I'm not, I couldn't reach the notes that the likes of Beyonce and people like that could reach. That's mm. not the kind of singer I was. But in folk music, they're a little bit more forgiving, and you can get away <laughs> with it. They are. Uh, it, yeah. As <laughs> Los Morenos, that was the name of the band, Los Morenos, as the band got bigger and bigger, People were a bit more critical about me. I, they didn't think I really fit in with the band. And the band was full of really young, good-looking men. And then there was just me up front. And, uh, <laughs> it was a great disappointment to people to see this sort of ordinary woman up front who's just not a brilliant singer. So well, needless I'm, to say, I, I wasn't in the band for very long. <laughs> I beg to differ because you've played me some of your mm. music that's on YouTube and there seems to be some sort of photo montages of you guys on stage in these yeah. some of these videos on, on YouTube. Yeah. 
and it's very cool and and you and you look great up there and <laughs> and and it's like you know it's like a time machine so seeing a younger you but but definitely yeah. um didn't think you were a bad singer i mean no not terrible no but we've just been talking about punk rock i mean that's you know, yeah. some pretty terrible thing they can't sing either Do you know what yeah. i mean yeah yeah it wasn't terrible but it just it was more my first husband's passion and right. rather than mine and as we got bigger and better um and the more bigger shows like to the point where we were selling out houses that were like two thousand people and whatnot yeah the pressure on me as manager got really great because then I became more involved in the managerial side of things and further away from actually being in the band. And then I just sort of had this epiphany when I realized I don't really enjoy this very much. And as much as I love music, I prefer the behind the scenes rather than the performing aspect. Right. Yeah. And we were just sort of drifting, me and my husband. I'm very sorry to say we, we just sort of drifted and we just sort of came to the mutual conclusion that, you know, maybe this was as far as it was going to go. And that was that, and, which is and, a sad story. But And does this mean, do you mean with the marriage or the band? Yeah, yeah, no, we divorced. And so when I left him, obviously I left the band as right. well. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't want to get awkward. <laughs> that would and, be. I, and, you know, that was a stage of my life, which I enjoyed thoroughly and very grateful to have had that experience. Yeah. Did some really cool stuff, met some really cool, interesting people. And, and then it was time to move on to the next progression of my life. Yeah. And, and also my health was failing too. So I wasn't doing very well. I'd always had poor health because I've had kidney failure all my life. And so that touring and all of that was really hard when I was, you know, not doing so well health-wise. Okay. Do you want to get? Do you want to talk about that? Because sure, yeah, you you do seem to be open. And I'd actually forgotten. Not that it's you know, <laughs> not that it defines you at all. But no, I, not at all. I I'd actually forgotten that you know you've done all of this stuff in your life despite mm. um, daily dialysis, or is it week? Yeah. What, what, what is your dialysis um, schedule? Routine? Well, back then I had a working transplant, so I, I went on dialysis very young when I was about. 10 or 11 right. um, and then I got a transplant from my dad a couple of years later but it didn't last terribly long it only lasted a few years and then of course I was back on dialysis so when I met my first husband I was on dialysis um, for about 10 years and then I got a cadaver transplant which was great and I got 16 years out of that which was brilliant Wow! so during the time of the band I'd had a working transplant but it was failing unfortunately and of course you get very sick when it starts to fail and so after my marriage, I, you know, struggled on uh, with this failing transplant and eventually gave up the ghost and I went back on dialysis. And I've been on dialysis for many years since. So, yeah, it's I dialyze. Currently, I don't do too badly. I'm only doing um, four days a week for four hours at a time. Previously, I used to do eight hours, five days a week. So that was a long, but still working full time, still having a life. It was a real struggle, though. To, wow to manage it all because I dialyzed during the night and worked during the day. Oh, so you did it when you were sleeping? Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm, I assume that, that, that what, does, what does dialysis feel like? Does it, is it uncomfortable? question. Does it feel like yeah. there's some sort of invasion? Like you, what's... I mean, obviously it's not pleasant to have to needle yourself 
every other day and the needles are very large because they have to accommodate a, a large volume of blood so they're much larger than your average needle so that's obviously uncomfortable the actual process itself isn't too bad you can get lightheaded and nauseous and all of that when you're on the machine but if you understand how it works and if you're self-care like i am my dialysis at home i do all my own treatments you sort of learn your tolerances and you adjust the treatments accordingly. So when you're actually on the machine, you're tired, you're a bit run down, but it's not too bad. I still color and write radio shows and do all sorts of activities. I mean, obviously you're pinned to a machine, so you can't really go for walks or anything because you've only got like a range of about a foot that you can move, but Mm. it's not that bad. It's very tiring. I think the biggest thing about dialysis is the restriction on your life because you're heavily restricted with respect to diet and fluid because I have no kidneys. I can't urinate. I haven't urinated in like 10 years. So where does that excess fluid go? Well, it sits on your heart and in your lungs and on your joints. So when you've had too much to drink, any kind of fluid, whether that's a cup of tea or an ice cream or gravy, it's all fluid. Right. Um, it sits on your heart and lungs and it gets very uncomfortable. Wow. So that's probably the hardest thing about being on dialysis is that you're frequently overloaded. It's sort of, sometimes it feels like you're trying to wade through a pool. You know, you try running in water and you're mm. sort of held back. It's a bit like that when you have so much fluid in you that you can't get rid of. So that's very uncomfortable. I had no idea that that's what happened. I assumed dialysis was that, you you know, you've got a couple of knackered kidneys Pardon the terminology, um, and you have to use a machine to in, intervene with them and make yeah. them do the job they should have done. Yeah, they don't interact with the kidneys at all. Right. Um, okay. It's purely a filtering system with the blood, so it take it's consistently taking blood out of your body, running it through a high grade filter, putting right. it back into the body. So that's happening consistently for those four hours or however long you dialyze. Now, obviously, the longer you dialyze, in theory, it's going to be much better for you because you're going to be able to filter out much more fluid and toxins. Right. And what's strange is that when you have kidney failure, you suddenly learn that everything is toxic to you. You know, some food items more than others. So foods high in phosphate and potassium, for example, bananas, chocolates, peanut butter, coffee, all those kind of things are suddenly very toxic right. and seriously toxic. They can give you a heart attack and kill you if you're not careful. So you're restricted now with your diet and you have to really monitor what you eat and drink. And that's a real drag because I love food and I love I've never seen you monitor what you drink, Kelly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, alcohol is a little bit different, (laughs) believe it or not. Is it? A lot of alcohol doesn't have potassium or phosphate in it. So (laughs) I would have assumed. They're not diabetic. Right. I'd assume that alcohol would probably be the worst thing you could do to your... Yeah, you shouldn't drink a lot. And can I just <laughs> rephrase something here? Can I just clarify? Yeah, yeah go for it. I'm not actually a big drinker. I have a small drop of medicinal sherry <laughs> for purely for medicinal purposes, you understand. Ah, uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, actually, one of, the, one of the first times I became aware of you, Ellie, was... Yes. I saw one of your your Facebook videos... Yes. Um, promoting your radio show, mm-hmm. and you had your sherry, and yes. you had your bottle of sherry, yes. and you were going, yes, this is my mixtape, uh, yeah. <laughs> and you come on my radio show, and you were drunk, and you were doing a very good job of it, to the point where I wasn't yes. actually, I wasn't sure, actually. Yes, a lot of people thought I was genuinely drunk. Where the real Ellie begins and ends. Yes, because I was promoting the fact that this is so ironic because it was last New Year. 
So I was pretending to be drunk because it had been a shit year for me. Right. You know, 2019 had not been a good year. And so I was pretending to be roaring drunk and saying to everybody, watch my show because it's been a shit year. And 2020 is going to be a better year. It's got to be a better year. <laughs> of course, oh, the irony. 2020 oh. most certainly was not no. a better year. No, it wasn't. So it's all my fault. Sorry about that, folks. Yeah, you jinxed that one. But yeah, and then I, I, you know, then I started seeing you about, and I started seeing a few more of your um, your your promo videos and stuff. And I thought, mm. ah, I thought here is someone I need to meet. <laughs> Needs to be on my radar. Um, yes. And then uh, and then you invited me on your show. I think I think that's how it went. I did. And uh, yes, and I was right. like, I've seen you. You're <laughs> you're funny and interesting. <laughs> yes, I'll go on your show. Um, so, so you do this this whole musical career, and yes. then you realise that okay, the kidney that you've had from the cadaver. Mm. Do they tell you yes. whose kidney it was, male, female, the age? Uh, they do not. They, they don't do- give you any information. You can. There are ways of tracing it. I never actually did trace it. I, you know, mostly because I didn't want to feel guilty. Wow. <laughs> Find out that it was a mother of two young children. You know, although one of my family members did ask and. As far as I understand, it was a younger person, and I think they died in a motorcycle accident. I think it was male, right. and I think it was a motorcycle accident, but I'm not entirely sure about okay. that. So they're, they're, yeah. obviously their age would, would, I'd assume, dictate how many good years you get out of it. Mm. Yeah, um, uh, generally speaking, it doesn't necessarily work that way, but yeah. Uh, did you did your body accept this the, these two kidneys you've had, or did is there complications with re, with rejection? Yeah, a, yeah, there was complications with rejection, especially with the first. I was rejecting, and ironically, that was my dad's kidney, so it should have been a great match, but it right. rejected almost from the get go, and so I managed to hold on to it for about two years, but it struggled consistently, and. So they have to pump you, and this is back in the you know eighties right. when the drugs weren't as good. So they were pumping me full of immunosuppressants, which were just creating havoc on my body. Right. And um, were really it's, it was a case where the cure was worse than the disease. Right. Um, so it was a relief to finally get rid of that kidney because it was just poisoning me. And I adapted to a life on dialysis. It wasn't great, but I've been on dialysis so young. It's sort of all I know, and so. It hasn't stopped me from doing anything. You know, I got married. I had lovers. I went dancing. I went clubbing. I went and traveled, you know, from North America to Europe and back. I did. I worked full time. I had an interesting life and I have an interesting life. You know, I'm slowing down now because it's been a long time. And obviously the body can only take so much. And so I'm sort of entering my golden years, quote unquote. And I understand that now my time is very limited. Right. So... That's one of the things that made me decide to leave Canada and to come back to the UK was because I was told that, well, you've only got a certain amount of time left. So I thought, right, I'm going to make the most of it. Okay. And so I decided to come back here and do things on my terms. Yeah. And I'm having a great time. Um, can I ask how long? What was uh, some the- years ago, I was told I had about five years to go. So now that doesn't mean that it's set in stone. Right. Um, it's probably a few years, but it could be. I could be that one anomaly that says, fuck you, and right. <laughs> lives for another 20. I don't really think about it very much because I understand that it's there and that, you know, time is limited. 
But nobody can say really when any of us will die, especially with this pandemic. I mean, any one of us could die tomorrow. Right. So it's it's no longer important anymore. It's I'm not even afraid or or anything like that. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting because some people will say, "Oh, I don't want to know when I'm going. Mm. I just want to I don't know get hit by a bus and go." Do you know what I mean? Or yeah. or, or, or whatever, or die die my sleep very fast or something and other people say no i I would really you know love to know that i've got yeah x amount of years left so that i can Mm. position myself in in life Mm. to fully take advantage of of that um well isn't that just my luck though andy having it forced (laughs) on you isn't (laughs) i've only got this uh, certain amount of time and boom a pandemic hits Right. When I should be out partying and having tons of sex, drugs, and rock and roll mm. and traveling, a pandemic hits. This is just the theme of my life. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, that, yeah, that is, um, that's heartbreaking, isn't it? <laughs> um, it's, it's funny, but not funny. No, I, you know, I, I know. It's typical. Th- there's an element of like, huh? <laughs> okay, all right, yeah, all right, yeah. You know, what else you got? Yeah, is there, there's a. God, uh, you're a funny guy. Yeah. Real funny. <laughs> wait, yeah, wait till I get up there. Um, <laughs> then you'll be sorry, although I'm probably going to go down. Not up, but that's okay. <laughs> well, I'll see you there for sure. Um, so how do you deal with, I mean, if you don't want to talk about this stuff. You know, no, I don't have any problem talking say, about it. Say it, we're absolutely going to move on. But so they t- they give you this news. Mm. How do you deal with this? What's your, because that, I think that's my worst fear. If someone said to me, Andy, what's your, what is your worst fear? My worst fear is someone saying, oh, you've got six months or something mm. and just yeah. knowing it's coming um, mm. and it being... So you don't let that idea dominate your life. No, not at all. Don't, I don't even think about it. You don't wake honest. up in the it's morning. It's because and... I think on some level I don't believe it. Right. Okay, so there's I'm an element... I'm cocky and arrogant and narcissistic enough to think that I can conquer anything. Yeah. And so on some level I don't believe it. Now, I do have very bad days when it seems, okay... It's definitely happening. I okay. can see it now. Yeah. Um, I. It's not that I'm totally casual about it. Obviously, I, I don't want to die. Nobody wants to die. Yeah. But it's going to happen to us all. And it's much more important to think, well, I've had an interesting life. I've met great people. I've done interesting things. And whatever's left, that's going to continue. I'm going to continue to do interesting things and meet great people. So I'd rather focus on that. Yeah. It's it's also a little bit of a relief, and this is going to sound very bizarre, but it's a little bit of a relief to know that there is an end. I don't really know how to explain it, but I suppose the best way I can describe it is that when you've had a chronic illness all your life mm. and it's getting worse, it's a drag. And to know that there's an end date is kind of a, a bit of a relief. Right. So... I don't really know how else to put a spin on it. I, I mean, obviously, when the time comes, I'm probably going to say, damn it, this isn't what I want. Yeah. But, you know, who knows? I'll make the most of it. Right. Yeah. But I don't sit and cry or do anything like that. I'm just totally not bummed out. In fact, I'm starting a new phase of my life uh, very soon. I've applied for an apartment on Catherine Street, so right in the center of town. Very excited about that. Yeah. And looks like I've got it, although I don't want to jinx myself. But And I'll be getting a portable dialysis machine, so that means that, in theory, I will be able to travel. So this last phase is going to be fun. Rendezvous. Yeah, rendezvous. <laughs> hey, hey. Tinder. Woohoo, Tinder, here I come. 
Yes. <laughs> is there a grinder for heteros? I don't know. Uh, I, I'm not sure, actually. Grinder is typically for the um, the gay and queer community, I yeah. guess. Um, oh, well. Maybe I'll try that. Maybe a, that'll be the next phase of my life. There might be a straight section of it. I don't know. <laughs> it, it, it's a bit like OnlyFans. Everyone thinks that having an OnlyFans account means that you do sort of homemade amateur porn and sell it. But really, oh. but really OnlyFans... There's a huge section of OnlyFans, which is people will sell their music and their short films. And I've never heard of this. I'm now going to have to look oh, it up because okay. that could be my next stage. I could be Cherry O'Scarlet or, you know, the first dialysis porn star. What do you think? Yes, people are into all kinds of things. I know there'll be a market. I know a few people that um, <laughs> that do OnlyFans uh, on the side, <laughs> and some people pay a, an awful lot of money to look at some very average-looking feet. So, um, yeah. Well, you know, I used to be a life model at the University of Calgary, so I'm used to getting my kid off in front of strangers. <laughs> That's good to know. That should be your. Um, that should be in your Tinder bio. That's your Tinder thing. Ex okay. life model at University of Calgary. So I'm used to getting my kid off of strangers. You just watch those those uh, matches fly in, darling. Um, so, so tell me about post. You, you, you've done the band thing. Mm-hmm. Then, then where do we go? You do some voiceover work at some point, and you've developed. Some uh, yeah, sort not of- very much, but uh, uh, I went from there into oil and gas. Of course, Calgary is the oil and gas capital of Canada, so that seemed like a natural progression. And worked in oil and gas for some years, and then weirdly, I got headhunted uh, to go into law. And I thought, I don't know the first thing about law, but I was a really good executive assistant, and so of course, headhunters were looking for people like me. And so they said, Have you tried family law? So why not give it a shot? So I went there from oil and gas into family law and worked as a paralegal uh, for senior counsel for many, many years in family law. And then from there, I got headhunted again uh, by a government ministry to be um, an an assistant and a coordinator with them uh, for the provincial government. And I worked under the Minister of Health uh, for the the Health Quality Council of Alberta, and I worked in several roles there. I was their receptionist, and I also worked in their marketing uh, department and also did some of their public concerns work, and um, it was great. So they did patient safety and quality of care and health care, and they answered directly to the Minister of Health. So it was great because I could view that from both lenses. I was a patient, and now I'm also working in the industry. So I had that perspective, which was quite useful, and did that for years, and then And then sadly, my health deteriorated quite badly. I I had married again in the interim and that lasted for 10 years. But then he, you know, ran off with a younger model, you know, that old tale. And yes, yes, he ran ran off with a much younger woman. And it hit me like out of the blue. I had no idea. Um, He told me and then two days later he was gone. And suddenly I'm completely on my own. I don't, he wasn't financially supporting me. It was just me on my own working. And... I had to move, and so I've lost a husband, I've lost my house, everything just fell apart, and it was just crazy, and so my health just tanked, because it was failing anyway, Right. and this is where the power of community came in, because people knew me from the community, because I, you know, I'm the sort of person that people recognize, because I dress kind of unusually, and I'm friendly, and wherever I go, coffee shops, wherever I make friends, and so when the community found out about my situation, my friends, they all rallied and members of the community rallied and they helped me move. Suddenly on moving day, 
before moving day, actually, all of these people came, they packed my boxes, they cleaned my apartment, and then they moved me into a new apartment. And it was just amazing, the spirit of friendship and community from people that not only were dear to me, but also people I didn't know who just rolled up their sleeves and lend a hand. The guy who worked at my bank was amazing. I've got to give him a shout out. His name's Kent Parley, and he worked with Royal Bank of Canada. He is an amazing human being. He was great. He went above and beyond to help me out. I mean, he even came and helped me sell things and take things to the tip. I mean, he, he worked in my bank. It was just yeah. unbelievable. Wow. The, the community spirit that rallied around me, I just couldn't believe it. Yeah. And so that started the second phase of my life. And, you know, that was great. But then, of course, as my health got worse, I decided then, okay, if I have a limited amount of time, what do I want to do and where do I want to be? And my sister, Kate, really encouraged me to return to the UK. Mm. And I did. I was very sorry to leave my amazing friends in Canada. And that's been difficult. They've since visited me a few times, but, you know. They were such a huge force in my life. It was really hard to say goodbye to them. And they were a group of very strong-minded women who were funny and sassy and strong. And so that was hard to say goodbye to that. Yeah. But I've met women here equally funny, sassy, and strong, so that's been great. Oh, there's plenty of them around Froome. Yes, there um, certainly are. We, I'm convinced that there's a witch's coven here somewhere in Froome that is stopping women of a certain age from aging. Because it's amazing. I'm meeting all these women. Yeah. One of my close friends, her name is Amanda Ralph. She's amazing. She's frequently on the show, actually. She's a, an actress, a former actress, and uh, she's 81, but you'd never know it. She is just so amazing. And my friend Anne Boland, who's also on the show quite often, uh, she's in her 70s, and you'd never know it. These women are so young at heart, and so I think they're part of the coven. I'm convinced. I know a witch. Do you? In Froome. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me. Who does not look her age. No, I'm telling you, there's something about this area. She's a real witch. Oh, wow. She's Put amazing. Put in touch with her. I will. Yeah, she's great. And uh, so there's defi- <laughs> there is definitely... Um, there, there's definitely girl power in Froome. There's a coven. <laughs> working on your behalf. Yes. In, behind the scenes. There's <laughs> cauldrons, right. there's hexes, yeah. anything you need. <laughs> I, I, can, I can get you hooked up. Excellent. I know Good a know. real witch. She's the real deal. Woo-hoo! Um So, uh, did you feel any element of guilt leaving that community after they'd yeah. done that, that thing? Yeah, I did. Because it wasn't long after that I left. I was only there maybe about six months of that. Maybe eight months. Yeah, of course I did. I felt very guilty. But everybody completely supported me in that and understood. And again, they rallied once more and helped me move again. Unbelievable. In fact, my second husband's ex-wife, Bev, (laughs) who I was (laughs) super close with actually throughout my whole marriage, she and I got along really well. I mean, I had nothing to do with the breakup of her marriage, but um, yeah, she and I... Come on, yes, you did. bloody well didn't. She had been divorced from him a very long time. Um, (laughs) Did she not warn you about him? Well, she didn't. She was being very kind and she thought he changed. And so there you go. (laughs) Oh yeah. Anyway, I don't har- I don't harbor any ill will. You know, it was time to move on. That's fine. You guys are cool though now, aren't you? Yeah, Is we're that totally right? you cool. Guys are okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're yeah, totally I thought cool. You were. Yeah. I understand. You know, these things happen, and I understand. It might not be the popular viewpoint, but you know, I was becoming very ill, and and as a result, being a neglectful wife, and I get it. He felt lonely, and he felt despair, and watching somebody you care about 
become increasingly ill is really difficult. And so oh, wow, when yeah. somebody offered him succor, he took it. And I understand. I'm not justifying it, but I understand it. And so right. it's why I didn't harbor any ill will. And I, and I guess, very much sorry, love yeah. his children. My stepson's right. Jordan and Paris are super awesome dudes. And that relationship's super important to me. But his yeah. ex-wife, Bev, and I became very close. And so when I moved to Britain, she actually got on the plane with me and helped me settle in the first week I was here. Oh, that's amazing. Isn't that amazing? The kind of friendships yeah. that you can build, even though yeah. something terrible had happened, something wonderful came out of it. Right. For everybody. And I guess... I guess if you've been told five mm. years, mm. you ain't got any time for hate. No, I don't. Anymore. I not never I'm, did. It's not I'm saying that you did ever no. have time for no. hate, but I'm assuming at this point you go, you know what, what am I leaving? Be- am I going to leave wreckage behind mm. and an unfinished business or um, am I going to see life for what it is, is this rare um fleeting gift and be responsible with that and also i had a great marriage with him that sounds odd i know but i did we were great friends and he was very intelligent and actually i have to credit him with passing on a ton of knowledge about music because he was a huge audiophile and knew so much about music and most of my collection came from him so his name is Doug Hollenbeck, and he has a YouTube channel called My Bike, My Bike. It's a strange name, but it's great. It, he plays tons of obscure music as well as, of course, classics. He was really clever and intelligent and music-focused, and so I, I'm very grateful for that. And it also brings up another point, and this is an elephant in the room people don't want to discuss, but spouses of partners who have long-term chronic illnesses suffer too, and mm. it is very hard on them because they are excluded whether they intend to be or not, and whether people who with the illness intend to exclude them, you do, unfortunately. And it does affect marriages when you have this chronic long-term illness. I just couldn't be the wife he needed. And I mean, obviously there's more to the story than that, but I am, I don't want to vilify him too much because, you know, there are always other elements to the story. I enjoyed the marriage while it lasted. It ended and now I've moved on to this next phase, and that's great. So he helped me do that. So I don't yeah. – why, why harbor hate? Why? Yeah. What, ben, what does it benefit anybody, really? Yeah. Because I got 10 years out of it that I enjoyed. It takes a lot of energy, doesn't it? Mm, absolutely. I'm not sure I've ever really, truly hated anyone. No, me neither. I've been very angry at people mm. for yeah. periods of time. But I, 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 I'm, I'm – when someone says, oh, I, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy, I often say, well, then you don't have a worst enemy. <laughs> exactly. Hate destroys the hater more than it does the person who's hated. Yeah, I, yeah it's cancerous, I think, mm-hmm. spiritually. And I'm here now, and that's a great thing. That wouldn't have mm. happened. And I'm grateful for yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so so what's what's next, What's next? Other than other than what we have talked about uh, as what what's coming, um, and and that you need to make the most of your time in, in any way that you can. Mm. But within that, within this time, mm. however long that is, what are your what's your number one focus? Is it the radio show? Is it is it comfort? Is it inner peace? Is it strengthening? relationships building new relationships 
Is it legacy? What, what, Boy, what, what is it? That's a really good question. It's not something I've ever, ever truly thought about. I think legacy obviously is a big one because I'm vain and I'm narcissistic enough to want to think that people will think of me when I'm gone. Um, but I'm more a take one day at a time rather than look to the future kind of person. I always have been. The yeah. radio show is a lifesaver and super important to me. I think that without having that focus during this pandemic and with my increasing ill health, I think that I might have just given up the ghost by now. The radio mm. show has just kept me going and it's kept me interested and engaged. And I've met interesting people. And so I don't mm. want to give that up. So obviously the radio show is going to be a huge thing. I'm also um, going to be doing some documentary work uh, with a lady by the name of Rachel Lewis. And she's a renal nurse. And we worked together in Canada. She is a Brit, but she actually went to Canada to do some work. We met and we did some patient advocacy work there. And we did a documentary about life on dialysis. And it was designed to be for patients and it was the good bad and the ugly and so it was a success and so we want to do that here in the uk and we're going to focus heavily on things like sexuality you know what happens when you lose your mojo how do you get it back how do you deal with the fact that it may never come back we're going to discuss the things that aren't normally discussed all the elephants in the room we're going to talk about things like my second husband leaving and how renal failure and chronic illness affects spouses too and they're not always the bad guys and so we're going to address a ton of really uncomfortable questions because that hasn't actually been done these are things right. that are only ever loosely talked about in very vague ways by healthcare workers and and they often use very cliched terms they'll say well if your sexual libido is failing to have a bubble bath go for a romantic walk and, you know, yeah, that's nice and all, but it's kind of useless information. It doesn't right. deal with the sheer devastation of what it means to lose your libido. And to suddenly have that area affected is horrible. And so we want to address that and think, are there ways you can conquer that? We want to bring in experts and other patients. And so it's a work in progress. And I don't know how long it'll be before we can actually get it out to the public, but that's something we've just started to work on. And I've started to do very small little videos where I talk to the camera about that. Of course, being me, I had to make some of them funny and, you know, just to also yeah. because otherwise it's too depressing. So you've got to hmm. inject humor. Humor is so important. It's always been a huge element of my life. And so it will continue to be so. So for the future right now, I'm going to move into a new place, get settled and I'm just going to keep on the path that I'm on, work on this yeah. documentary and work on the radio. And if there's any eligible single men out there <laughs> who, despite hearing everything I've said about libido and all that, are still interested, give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> libido. Libido club. Must Here love cats. Uh, is that your, one of your stipulations? They yeah, have they have cats. to like cats. That's a good one. A good and one. David Bowie Bowie. Bowie Bowie. Yeah. Um, what I was going to say is that um, I can imagine that you're are these taking place in sort of t kind of like video diary form yeah yeah so of course you're going to make them funny but also education for humour is probably the best mm -hmm. the best way yeah but there's, a, there's that whole line isn't there between yeah. you know we don't want to take the piss out of this or minimise this or trivialise it yeah uh, or make it seem like a joke mm. Because, it, because on the other hand, you really want to give a very raw and honest depiction of life. Yeah. Um, managing it. Yeah. Um, but you don't want it to be, 
it's like a morose. And, no, uh, like, d- come on, everybody, why are you so glum? Smile already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because really my life is not very different than anybody else's. I still, you know, do the same things everybody else does. I go to the coffee shops, I meet friends, I go for walks, I watch movies, you know, I have fun. That I just happen to have an illness that's just a but I built a life around it and it had certainly mm. hasn't defined me. It's certainly made me strong and is a testament to my strength, but no, it hasn't defined who I am. I'll send you one of the little videos. It's very short and it's yeah, yeah. a funny way of me saying, how do I get my mojo back? Okay. Yeah. Do that. Mm. Um, and, and when that's finished, when that's done, we'll get you back on the pod and we'll talk about it. Yeah. Maybe we'll get your, um, what's her Rachel, name? Rachel, Rachel Lewis. Perhaps we'll do, uh, maybe we'll have a three-way. <laughs> well, hey, I've always well, wanted a three-way, Andy. <laughs> uh, and we'll talk about the, the, the thing. What the, One of the other things I wanted to talk about was you mentioned that ego and narcissism and, yeah. and things like that. And I know you, you mention it in jest and it's, you, you're yeah. not actually saying that you're a narcissist. <laughs> no. But I wondered if the fact that because you've been so ill for so long mm. and you know that, is in many ways life threatening, and yeah. the future has never really truly been guaranteed. Right. Whether that that has inf- informed that part of you that, that you needed to be louder, brighter, more colourful, more outgoing, more ambitious, mm. and more legacy based, because you've always been unsure of how long you might have. Yes, that's... Uh, uh, and, and to a degree, your siblings or your friends mm-hmm. have a more sort of guaranteed... Well, not guaranteed, because nothing is, but they yeah. have a, a... You know what I mean? You've yeah. seen... Yeah. You, you think, oh, you might go on beyond me, and I don't want you to forget about yeah. me. Yeah. So do you... Th- because a lot of the time, narcissism is, is considered to be a really negative thing, and it mm. can be a really negative, destructive thing. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. But we all have a bit of it. Of course. Because otherwise we wouldn't get on podcasts. Of course we do. We wouldn't get on yeah. stage and tour. There's, it, come, it's, it's, it comes with the territory, yeah. a little bit of it, because yeah. you, you have to assume that people want to hear me prattling on to you about whatever. <laughs> do you know what I mean? You have to assume that people yeah. will find this a bit interesting. And that comes from some sort of ego and some level of narcissism. Yeah. But what does interest me is... What, how these things form. Right. It's a good question. Uh, I think it's a little bit nature-nurture in the sense that I come from a family of very vibrant, uh, you know, bombastic personalities. My dad, like I said, was uh, an actor and, uh, and, you know, a singer and did all sorts of things. He was the life and soul of the party. And um, my mom, not so much. She was a lot shyer, but she was a great beauty. And just by being beautiful, of course, that meant that she was the center of attention you know I mean, she was like elizabeth taylor she was stunning um so i've got that in me naturally that i have that sort of bombastic outgoing personality that i've inherited from my family and partly my culture i mean the irish they love a good crack and they love you know a good party and that sort of being around people i don't know if i've ever really thought of it in terms of my illness, but now that you've mentioned it, I suppose, really, I suppose in some ways that has been a factor to, to not be forgotten because you think, Mm. well, if I die before my time, quote unquote, I don't want to be, I want people to remember me. I think that's the saddest thing. And I'm also an atheist, so I don't have the comfort of thinking that I'm going to go on and Mm. live in heaven or hell or wherever else. Like, I just think that when you die, you die and that's it. So that's very final. 
And so if I can at least live on a memory, then that's obviously a positive thing. I mean, who doesn't want to be remembered? But also, I like to be the center of attention. I'm not going to lie about that. Obviously, you're right. We wouldn't be in this sort of business if we didn't. But for me, it's more, it's not so much about being the center of attention is more about engaging. I love engaging with people and I love the energy that's created when people get together and they're chatting and they're talking, they're exchanging stories, they're happy. It creates this sort of energy. It's almost like a drug. And people Mm. like me feed off that. We love having people over, having dinner parties, engaging with people, being in crowds and festivals and markets and things like that because it is a source of energy for us and maybe that does connect with being unwell because it's a source of energy i don't know it's a really interesting interesting thought andy i never really gave it a lot of thought until now but i'm sure it has fueled it me in some way yeah and it doesn't have to be a negative thing if you think about it later tonight and you come to the conclusion that 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 theory is in some way correct is not a bad thing at no, all. No, not at all. But one of one other thing is if you're one of how many kids were you five? I'm one of five. One of five kids. Mm-hmm. You're the youngest, mm-hmm. so you're probably used to getting quite a bit of attention yeah. anyway. <laughs> well, also um, my siblings claim that, of course, not only being the youngest, but being mum's favorite because <laughs> uh, I'm right. the baby, and also having an ill health would have meant that I might have got more attention than others. But actually, that right. kind of works a bit. You think that a person who's unwell would get a lot of attention, but what happens is you get ignored a lot of the time, not deliberately, but people are super uncomfortable being around you when you're very ill. And so they don't want to come visit you in hospital because it really upsets them. And so you end up spending a lot of lonely days in hospital without visitors because it makes people uncomfortable. So it's kind of that weird dynamic that happens. Yeah, you get attention on one hand, but you also get ignored. So it's this bizarre concept. Yeah. It's very interesting. I do, I do, like, part of the, the reason I do this podcast is I do, I love to dive into, mm. into these things and ask people these questions because mm. I do find, I, mean, I, pro, I should have done psychology or something yeah. at university. Because <laughs> I, do, I find it so, so fascinating. I do as well. I always want to know what drives people. I'm a huge fan yeah. of true crime documentaries mm. and whatnot because yeah. I always want to know what drives people to do such dark things you know yeah. why why did they do that and always trying to understand it I mean it's really hard for somebody who isn't a psychopath to understand psychopaths but still I'm fascinated right. by it I had this conversation with the witch that I mentioned ah. to you earlier like a day or two ago yeah. which was that psychopaths will always fascinate me because we we who have active working empathy centers in our brain Mm -hmm. because that's clinically what a psychopath is isn't it someone who's in in, capable of feeling empathy i said empathy is it's the filter in which we experience all humanity correct our entire experience on this planet Mm. is colored by our flavor of empathy right or our construction of empathy within our frontal lobe somewhere yeah and so for for there to be a human being where that doesn't exist we can almost not i mean at least i can we cannot comprehend what the world looks like through those eyes no i can't because everything we do and think about and interpret 
and take in in some way is linked to empathy in, in, in whatever way in its Absolutely. root. And I have it an is, abundance is, of it, which sometimes can be a bit yeah. of a burden because I drive some of my friends nuts because I'll say things like, to be fair, and I'll give the perspective of somebody else, even mm. to somebody who's done me wrong, I'll say, to be yeah. fair. And it drives them nuts because they're like, no, stop giving them a break. <laughs> yeah. But I think that great punishment, if you could make it happen, what a great punishment for all psychopaths in the world is to suddenly gift them with empathy after yeah. they, you know, if they like, if you could somehow before Hitler died, if you could have gifted him with empathy and remorse, can you imagine what a punishment that would be to suddenly feel the weight, the true of weight what, what, of what, what, you've, what done. you've done and what that means? Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't, you'd go insane. You wouldn't be able to handle yeah. it. And to me, that would be the perfect punishment. If you could create a machine that creates empathy and remorse, you know, yeah. Like a drug, synthesizes yeah. it. Yeah. Not only would yeah. it cure people, but it would also punish them. Because yeah. then they'd have to live with that for the rest of their lives. With what they've done. Mm. So it would be it would be an internal prison as yeah. well as a... Ugh. That would make a good book. Yes. <laughs> now we've put it out into the world. Now, we, yeah, now somebody's going to steal our idea. Steal it, yeah. But yeah, it's, um, it's fascinating, isn't it? How we, how we... Humans are cool. Yeah. Very interesting. Uh, I probably should have ended this podcast a little while ago, but I don't want to. Um, so <laughs> tell me about one thing I want to go back to because we've talked about we've talked about some of the darker stuff. We talked about your illness. We talked about some of the, the great the great things that have happened in your life, the mm. joy in your in your life mm. and your spirit and everything. And and I don't want this podcast to feel like it's uh uh, a down or anything not no. that it has been but i don't no. want it to be to be colored that so tell me about love. love because when you were talking about your first husband earlier yes. i could see oh. your eyes yeah, they lovely. lit up <laughs> and you talk about him and i'm not saying that you maybe you loved him any more than your second husband if he's listening but um <laughs> uh, uh, but there's I don't know. My gut instinct, which is usually correct, is that when you went when you went back there in your head, that is a yeah. very, very, very precious, happy time. Absolutely, it is a regret. Tell me about love. It's a regret that we are no longer married. He's with a lovely lady now, and I'm very happy for him. So I certainly think that's wonderful. But I mean, of course, it's an, it's it's a regret. He was a truly lovely human being, and we were both immature and very inexperienced, and we didn't really work hard enough. I think with that relationship and it ended and it was a, a, a tragedy, a real tragedy. And I blame myself more than I blame him. I think that I played more of a role in that than he did. Um, is that empathy again? Yeah. <laughs> damn it. Damn it. Damn you, empathy. <laughs> damn you. Um, but love is brilliant. I love being in love. I also love my second husband and there is, you know, I love both of them still, of course. And, uh, each of those relationships brought wonderful things and elements that I'm so grateful for. But being in love, man, that's a drug. It is so lovely to be loved and to fall in love. And I'd love to find it again. I'm really struggling, mm. though. I have met people, you know, online dating and other, and other things and love them in my own way. But mm. I... I haven't met the right one yet. And who's the right one? Gosh, even I don't know that answer, but he'd have to be somebody right. with a sense of humor. Mm. He'd have to have liberal-minded politics and love music. And yeah. just be laid back and kind and, you know, and look like Tom Hardy or Idris Elba. But I'm not fussy, honestly. The perfect man. You're just looking <laughs> for the perfect man, aren't you? And why not? We should all expect the best for ourselves. Yes, yeah, so Idris, if you're out there and you're listening, still waiting, 
Uh, yeah. Tom, same thing. <laughs> Still waiting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever been in love, actually. Really? Truly. Oh. I don't know if I could ever, but looking back, I don't know if I, it's definitely, there's definitely been lust, uh, in, in lots of lust. Oh, I've been in love dozens of times. Lust. Dozens uh, 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 of times. <laughs> I, do, I just don't know. I mean, I don't know. I can Perhaps fall in just... love at the drop of a hat and fall right. out of love just as quickly, I'm afraid. Really? Um, well, maybe not just as quickly. Uh, yeah, I, I, I am somebody who falls in love easily and who loves, not just, you know, passionate sexual love, but love, love. I love my friends mm. dearly. I, I meet people and I instantly bond with them and love them. I love you, Andy. I love, I love you. love you too, Ellie. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that nice? That was a nice little moment. Yeah, isn't this great? I love my cats. <laughs> love my cats. I love my cats a lot. Because they don't talk. <laughs> they don't talk. I wish they they talk all the time. They never shut up. I have a right. cat called Jessie who's about four pounds of sheer brute force bullying-ish. I call her Uncle Carmine because she. I have to pay her protection. Otherwise, she beats me up. <laughs> and sometimes Uncle Carmine will sit on my chest at three in the morning and says, you know, you didn't pay your protection. I might have to accidentally <laughs> break your legs. So, yeah. <laughs> I love Uncle Carmine. She's great. <laughs> but love so, is love. So I hope know. to feel love again. I really do. Okay. I would like to die in love, if that makes ah, sense. What do you think? Right. Do you think your That's listeners can help idea. me oblige? Wow, we could, if you get your Tinder sorted, we can, I don't know, just some sort of. We, we I can came your, off Tinder because it was a nightmare. I met, it is a nightmare. I met guys who would send me these messages saying, oh, my God, you are amazing. I just spent 40 quid to join Tinder just because of you, because you're so freaking awesome, blah, blah, blah. And I text them back and say, okay, great. That's nice. And then they text back and say, oh, yeah, I've already met somebody. Sorry, bye. Uh, and I'm like, Well, you know, maybe we'll what? leave a link to one of your dating profiles. In the- I don't have a dating profile. <laughs> They'll have to contact me the old-fashioned way with a letter. You can write, okay. write to me. Or they can right. email me. I'll leave my variations email. <laughs> yeah, we'll do that. Let's see how many love-struck emails I get. Let's see what we get from this, <laughs> yeah. But I thought it's interesting you said you've been in love dozens of times. But yeah, I mean, I've definitely I've definitely been, like, infatuated with people or, mm. or, or, or like I said, lust, lusty. Mm. Um, but thinking about it, I don't know. I don't see, know that's if the problem. I could You're say, thinking about it, Andy. I don't know if I could say, oh, I, there's no one I've been with who I still love. Well, we have this idea that love has to be this all-embracing, all-encompassing, sweeping thing that keeps us Mm. in this hyper state of, you know, drenched emotion. But to Mm. me, love is far more subtle than that. To me, love is quiet. It's unintrusive. It sits with you quietly and has nothing to say because you don't need to say anything because silence is comfortable. To me, love isn't this earth-shattering thing. Love to me is much more simple than that. And that's why I fall in love easily because I'm not seeking to be swept off my feet. I mean, sure, that would be great and all, but that's a fairy tale that doesn't exist for most people. So if you were to think of love in much more looser terms, quieter Mm. terms, you'd find it much more easily. It's all around you. Damn it. Love is in the air. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Right. (laughs) <laughs> wow, that was powerful. We should leave I it on that a, note. What do you think? That's a good place to yeah. to, to stop it there. We'll leave it there. <laughs> Before we uh, get um, gross. Because I think that was that was really quite beautiful, actually. <laughs> um, 
And I really want to give a shout out to those ladies because they were such a driving force in my life and still are in many ways. The luscious Laura Lee Ross, the sassy Samantha Holmes, the irreplaceable Isabella Emirati, the heavenly Hanan Shabib, and the splendid Suzanne Shabib. A gorgeous group of gals to whom I am forever grateful. How's that for alliteration? Big thank you to our guest this week, Eleanor Talbot. If you want to listen to a radio show, if you want to check out some of her music, um, we will leave all relevant links uh, in the show notes descriptions. We will also leave some links to her family's art and whatnot. Uh, if you would like to like, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that really, really helps. Um, if you want to support this show for free in a really real way, then please send this podcast to one friend you think will like it or find some value in uh, and um, and do that right now, please. That really, really helps us. If you want to follow The Giant Pod online on social media, you can do that via Twitter and Instagram. The uh, handle is at The Giant Pod. You can also follow my Instagram at Andy underscore S1S. This podcast was produced by the Globetrot and Harry Williams. And we will see you next week on The Giant Pod. Thanks very much.